0: Well, we're in Matthew 7 still, <clears throat> and we're to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to deal this morning with just one little phrase, and then next week, we're going to take the next verse or two. This is hard. Do you hear me? It's hard to study, and we just soon not deal with it, but we have to, and it is the climax of jesus sermon on the mount so let's get the context back in verses 15 through 20 jesus gives us a warning about false prophets and he tells us what to watch for in identifying false prophets and so jesus has told us that they're extremely deceptive he has called them dangerous ravenous spiritual moral wolves in sheep's clothing and he has not left us without ways of recognizing them and so he says this is how you're going to know you're going to know them by their fruit and so a fruit tree may be beautiful and decorative and provide pleasant shade but its primary purpose is to bear fruit and it is not yet judged by how it looks it is not judged by how it looks but by what it produces If you've got an orchard of peach trees that are beautiful in the spring when they bloom but never bear a peach, you got trouble, right? And you can recognize a bad tree because it doesn't produce fruit. Well, in a similar way, a prophet is judged by his life, not simply by how he or she looks or sounds, um, not what he or she says, but we look for who the prophet is who he or she really is and so some false prophets are very obvious Um, but others are skillful in concealing their true nature and it takes very careful observation to identify them Um, jesus tells us here you will know them so hold on to that and so don't go around worrying about if you're going to be able to recognize them or know them or not because jesus says you will know them i think several things will happen number one you've got the facts of scripture to help you hold up to them to identify them but also the holy spirit in you is going to react the holy Spirit's going to go mm, and you may not be able to verbalize it or define it you just know in your heart i need to be careful here i need to watch them so jesus says You don't have to be deceived. I've given you ways so that you do not have to be deceived by a false prophet. Well, Jesus is dealing here with the deception of a tree that appears to bear good fruit but doesn't. Real Christians can be deceived by false prophets. Uh, When we are careless about Bible study, Uh, about obedience to God's word when we are not holding ourselves accountable to other believers when we're lazy about prayer and when we're compromising about the things of God we become vulnerable to be deceived and it's easy to be deceived it's easy to be deceived by somebody who is pleasant and positive and permissive and seems to conform to what everybody thinks is acceptable and right and good And so Satan loves to use God's people to promote his evil work. And any time he can, he will, because even that makes it more deceptive. And so if it were possible, he would snatch us away from our Heavenly Father. But guess what? He can't do that. But he can ruin our testimonies. He can snatch us away and keep us from having victorious lives. And so it's also possible for a tree to bear fruit that is attractive but is bitter. It's distasteful and even it can be poisonous. Um, This kind of tree is often harder to judge. And so scripture gives us three primary tests. This is a review. Three primary tests that we can apply when we're examining whether or not we're dealing with false prophet. Number one is the character of the person. Number two is the creed of the person. What does he say? What does he say about Jesus? What does he say about God's word? And number three, what about genuine Christian converts? So those are three just simple clues that you can be looking for when you're trying to make that decision. So in verse 16, there in, um, verse, in chapter 7, Jesus says, so then you will know them by their fruits but then jesus continues in verse 21 with some of the most stunning and frightening to me verses in all of the bible look at verse 21 not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, we learned back in verses 13 and 14 that there are only two possible options. Um, There is the narrow gate, and there's a wide gate. So uh, we've got to see this whole passage as a whole, not just lift out phrases and verses from it, but to see the whole picture. And so Jesus tells us that... Few find the narrow gate, but many find the broad gate. The narrow gate leads to where? Leads to life. The narrow gate leads to where? Leads to destruction. Okay? And so he says many, many find the broad gate, few find the narrow gate. If that's enough to keep you awake at night, well, awake at night right? And so Jesus gave the command, he said, you enter by the narrow gate. You enter by the narrow gate. Now remember, and and this is the stunning thing, and this is what I want us to be sure and grasp in all of this, because I don't know that I ever saw this before as clearly as I've seen this since I've been preparing this for you. These are religious people in both the narrow gate and the wide gate. And so what we've got here, the gates picture two kinds of religion. One pictures the religion of human achievement. This is where one sees himself as good enough to please God. We deal with those people every day, right? We know them. We've seen them. God is satisfied with man's goodness and efforts and religious activity and works and lets him into heaven just because he can pat him on the head and let him in. And so this is the religion of self-righteousness. It is the religion of self-righteousness, the religion of the flesh, and it involves what we do. That is number one. That is the wide gate. The second option is the religion of divine accomplishment. The religion of divine accomplishment, and it's all about what God has done. doesn't have anything to do with me has to do with what God has done and with his accomplishment and his gift to us and so it's all about what he has done and I understand that I am nothing and have nothing that pleases God in this fallen world because of our fallenness which the pastor's done an incredibly wonderful job of explaining to us the past few Sundays in Genesis. So I understand that I am nothing that pleases God. My righteousness, my self-righteousness, is as filthy rags. Nothing. And they count for nothing. And so the true Christian gospel is that God has done it all. So there are your two gates. The wide gate, I can do this. I'll get this figured out. I've got time. The other gate is I can't do anything to save myself. And so I'm coming to Christ because he is the only Savior. So the whole Sermon on the Mount discredits the religion of human achievement. Can't do it. And Jesus is in, I don't know how many different ways, many, many different ways in this sermon been explaining that ain't going to work. It may feel good to you. You may have decided that it's going to work. But I'm telling you here beforehand, when you get... the time of judgment when you stand before god it's not going to work it's not going to work and so jesus offers his hearers the people who are hearing the sermon on the mount the only true way to heaven which is i can do absolutely nothing god has done it all through his son the lord jesus christ the very very first words of the sermon on the mount are what blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven there you go so he started out with that and what does it mean to be poor in spirit it means to know that i can't save myself they don't have any righteousness of my own that if he doesn't save me i ain't gonna get saved there's not there's not salvation in any other So the poor in spirit are those who have no righteousness, nothing to offer, spiritually bankrupt, broken, shattered, mourning over their condition, humbly asking for God's salvation. And the Pharisees weren't doing that. So he's convincing religious people, this is where you're missing it. But, you know, both gates, both roads, the narrow gates and the broad gate, both of them promise heaven. So you've got the deceivers, the false prophets. You've got your own self looking for heaven through the broad gate. And Jesus is explaining it and explaining it and explaining it. And so the wide gate is easy to enter. He says, you know, you can go, you go in with lots of others. It's crowded. A lot of people can go through that gate at the same time. And you can bring your own baggage you can bring your own sin. You can bring your pet sins. You can bring your pride. You can bring the things that you want to deal with lately. later. You can deal with your own self-sufficiency. And so you bring, you, you can just come on, just come on in. Just keep, you, it's okay to keep doing things your own way. You don't have to repent. You don't have to commit your life. So there's a lot of tolerance on the broad way. But it is tolerance that stands in contrast to the word of God. It is difficult for us as humans to come to God on God's terms. We want to do it our way. Listen, he got it right when he says, I did it my way. Mm -mm. But it doesn't work. Over and over, the verse in Isaiah fifty-three comes to me because I guess I grew up thinking were sins that were all, sins were all these things you did, you know, you spit and you chew and you, you know, all of this stuff, and you know don't, you don't go with boys, all of that stuff, and I thought those are sins, so you have to stop doing those things. But Isaiah fifty-three says, "All ye like sheep have gone astray." Simple phrase. Each has turned to his own way well I want to tell you when you read that you don't want to sing that song that says I did it my way you want to put it up so we've got to come God's way but it's it's hard the small gate is hard it's hard because I give up my life I give up my way that's what it is to die daily when I give up my way so the small gate is a life of obedience to the word of God You die daily to your own will, and you love God. Well, there are two gates, so there are two destinations. One is destruction, one is life. One is everlasting torment, the other one is everlasting life. But the signs on both doors say heaven. Now, back in chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus summed up the whole Sermon on the Mount. And he says, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. So you've got all these people who think they're righteous. They're calling the shots, obeying the laws, criticizing other people because they don't do it the way they do. And Jesus says, I want to tell you what. If that's all the righteousness you've got, It's not going to work. It's not going to get you into heaven. So Jesus went on to explain that one of the ways, one of the reasons it is difficult to enter the narrow way is false prophets. They're going to convince you that this is um, out of date. That, you know, that's really too hard. That God is good and merciful and he's going to let you in. Just, Just don't worry about it and so these false prophets are telling people that the wide gate is the way to go it's comfortable it makes sense false prophets make it difficult for us to admit that we can't live up to the righteous standard of God on our own we have no righteousness of our own they tell us that we're okay They tell us that we can go through the wide gate with all of our sin and wander all over the place without it costing us anything. And God's just going to understand and be okay with it. Then Jesus climaxes this sermon with a warning about deceiving ourselves. And there are basically two categories of self-deception. The first one is when we have a mere verbal profession. And the second one is when we have merely intellectual knowledge. Well, I know. I know. And so these are people, and you're going to see it here, when what he says in just a minute. These are people who say, but don't do. They say. So look at the end of verse 21. I'll start at the beginning of the verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, again, I just continue to be stunned as I study this sermon that Jesus is talking to religious people. He's talking to churchgoers. He's talking to the people in the community who wear their phylacteries and their um, religious clothing and, and all of that. That's who he's talking to. You know, if you were there and didn't know better, didn't have God's word, you'd look at them and think, oh, I can never be like that. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. You're going to know them by their fruits. You better know their character, and you better see what they say compared to what I say. Because all through this sermon, Jesus has said what over and over again? You say so-and-so, but I say to you. So the question there is, who's God in this? Am I my own God, and I'm going to do it my own way, or am I going to bow to his way? And so... These are very religious people. They were possessed with religious activity. Busy, busy, busy. With all kinds of religious activity. They're not atheists. They're not anti-God. They were lost and didn't know it. They were deceived. They were connected to religion, but they were void of righteousness. There's only one way I can be righteous. How is that? For Jesus, the only righteous one, to give it to me, to put it to my account. That's the only thing that works. There's an illustration in Matthew chapter 25. Let's just go there and read it. It's so similar in so many ways, and we don't have time to cover the whole thing. But... um, Verse 1, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No. There will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And so while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. And later the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he answered and said, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, that word no is an interesting word, and that's where we're going to be next week, okay? But let me give you a clue. No doesn't mean I don't know your name. No doesn't mean that I'm not acquainted with you. This no means we don't have an intimate relationship. We don't have oneness. We don't have unity. I know your name, but I don't live in you. And so... These virgins are symbolic of people who have uh, some attachment to church and Christianity. Um, The bridegroom represents Christ, and they had lamps with no oil. Now, you think and tell me in Scripture, what does oil usually represent? The Holy Spirit. They didn't have him. They had no oil. And you know what? The other virgins couldn't give it to them. They couldn't give it to them. And so here's the scary truth to me. They didn't have Christianity. They had church. It's easy in our culture. To have churchianity, but not Christianity. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but he who doeth the will of my Father. What is the will of my Father? So, you know, it's easy for, for us to, I think, be deceived and trip back over here. Okay, I got to quit dipping snuff. I got to quit doing this. I got to stop doing that. I got to <coughs> What is the will of the Father? Verse 1. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the will of the Father? The will of the Father has to do with what I do with the Son. with What I do with his Son. Do I bow before him? Do I acknowledge my sinfulness? Do I acknowledge my brokenness without him? I'm thinking, yeah, you know, um, but I, I still got a lot of things I want to do. And I really, I've done more good things than bad things. And I think when I get up there, God's going to say, yeah, yeah, you've done more good things than bad things. Uh-uh. It's not going to be about what you do. It's going to be about who you are. And the only question that that's going to be asked is, what did you do with my son? And not did you just talk about it did he change your heart not like one of the 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 virgins the foolish virgins that said you know well we're here we've got everything did we didn't get any oil. you know what your light can't burn without all You cannot be a light for Christ without the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. It's in Jesus' words. And so we see that same kind of warning here in Matthew 7 where we are today. So, you know, I got what, what lulls people into deception? And it is a lulling. Did you ever, did you ever, you know what it is? to uh, lie on a float out in the ocean and oh the water's not real rough and and you know it just feels so good and you just want to lie there for a long time and you're not paying attention to what you're doing and what happens gradually and wonderfully you float too far out or you float a long way down the beach right because you are not paying attention to what you're doing You're not being alert. And so what are those things? Where where am I lulling? That's what I've had to ask myself. Where where am I lulling? Um, Maybe we don't examine ourselves. You know, it's not a fun thing to check your heart out for sin. We don't want it to be there. We don't want to be aggravated with it. We'd rather be doing something else. But we don't examine ourselves and we just don't really bother to face our sin and you know those things when the lord convicts us of something you think yeah i know but i it's so hard to quit i'll get i'll do it i'll do it and then it doesn't get done and in another year it's not done and another six months it's not done and the older you get the faster it comes and it's still not done another thing is maybe somebody else told you that you're saved this is a scary one um there's been a lot of movement through the years, and I'm not discrediting it. I'm just saying that I think we need to be careful, especially back, you know, when people would have, um, go down the sidewalk, you know, with the, with the plan of salvation and say, hey, you want to go to heaven? Here this is. You know, you see this? Do you believe this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sign your name right here. And then they'll say, now you never have to question again whether or not you're saved. Now, what I've got to worry about is, was that just a verbal commitment? Or do I just intellectually know about Christ? Or has my heart been given to him so that he can know me? So that he can know me. Next thing I, wrapped up, I wrote down was, maybe we're wrapped up in religious activity that makes us feel saved. I go to to church every time the doors are opened. I'm a member of this group. I'm a member of that group. I'm in the WMU. I'm a deacon. I do this. I do that. I cook supper for the preacher. Mm, All these things that make us feel saved. But am I broken over my sin? Where's my heart? Where's my heart? I guess another thing I want to say is, you know, sometimes we need, there are biblical ways to deal with the assurance of our salvation. I want to go back to what I said a minute ago when somebody says, don't ever question again whether you're saved or not. I'm going to tell you what, if your heart is still nagging when you're before the Lord and you're not sure, you need to do it again. Maybe you don't understand. childhood salvation experiences sometimes confuse us. I was saved when I was in sixth grade. I know that the Lord did a work in my life. It was unavoidable to me at that moment. But I worried for a lot of years because I learned so much later that I didn't know when I got saved. And so I would go through times saying, Do I need to do this again? Well, the more you know, the more you're going to realize you need a Savior. And you do go back to that. And that's dying daily. And every day I'm going to say to Him, I need you. I cannot save myself. I cannot deal with my own sin. I need you. And I come back to that, and we yield our hearts to him over and over again. So don't worry about it. Just do it again. And then ask him for whatever assurance there is that you need. Get in the word of God. You know if you've given him your heart the main question is, do I live in obedience to God's word? Now, every one of us is going to say, I don't do that all the time. Am I the only one? I don't do that all the time. But here, here, here for me is a clincher. When I disobey God's word and I know it, is there something going on right here? You know who I worry about? I worry about people who can live in sin and not be convicted. The Holy Spirit is not going to be in your heart and not react and make you miserable. And if you can sin and not be miserable, you, somebody with you, needs to get before the Lord and say, is there a problem here? Because the stronger the Holy Spirit, the more you grow in the Lord, and the stronger the Holy Spirit is there, He is going to make you miserable when there is a sin that you won't let go of. He's going to do it. You're just going to. So there's going to be a sense of conviction and remorse that draws us to confess it to God. And once we get before him and say, I confess this to you, I'm struggling with this sin. I hate this sin, but I'm having trouble quitting He's going to take you in and hold you and help you. He's going to help you do that. So what are some signs of deception? We got to hurry and quit. The children are singing with the adult choir this morning, so every grandmama in the church is going to be here, so I need to get y'all out of here early. Um, what are some signs of Deception. People seeking feelings and experiences because they're more interested in the thrills of the faith than in the faith itself can be deceiving. Okay. It just, oh, it just makes you feel, well, I want to tell you what, I can't find a place in scripture where any of these guys, whether it was John or Eli, any of those people stood in the presence of God, Moses, that didn't wind up falling down on their face before him in repentance. So it's not about it's going to give me this giddy feeling now you may have some good feelings after an encounter with the lord no doubt but it's not the reason that i'm bowing before the lord i need to be more interested in the lord than i am in myself number two people who are more committed to a denomination than to the word of the lord it's hard it is easy i'm just going to say this out loud It is easy to be more Baptist than it is biblical. And I don't care if it's Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or anybody else. When we get so attached to a denomination and let it override what we know is in the word of God, there is a problem. There is deception. Quickly, people involved in theology as academic interest. It's easy to go through seminary because you are academically involved. But then you look at that person according to these, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of preachers that know the word of God and will quote the word of God, and then they act like a devil on Monday. God says, there's a problem here. And that's why Jesus says, I'm giving you these signs so that you can examine and discern and know them. And then another, the last thing, people who are stuck on one overemphasized point of theology. They just get off on one limb instead of the whole truth of the gospel, and they stay there. Over and over. It's quirky. It's out of balance with God's word. We don't need to, we don't need to spend more time focused on a small thing in God's word than we do the whole word. There's balance there. So Jesus tells us right here, and we'll have to pick up right here next week. Jesus says, these are people. There are people out there in the church. These are religious people who are going to say, 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 but don't do God's will. What is God's will? To love his son. To show the world the truth about his son. And to keep dealing with our sin on a daily basis. To love one another. Go back through the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn over their sin. Blessed are they who are meek. That is letting the Lord teach them how to respond to him. Blessed are the, uh, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That bunch. That's what heaven's going to be like. And then he says, and I want to show you how, know the, the, how we know they're religious And this is what we're going to talk about next week. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? Jesus says, I never knew you. So next Sunday, we're going to talk about how they do all that. Do you have any questions or comments? The Lord bless you. You read the scripture, pray over it, meditate on it, see what the Lord says to you. And we're going to um, hopefully leave understanding what he's saying here. I love you all. Can't wait to see you next Sunday. God bless you.